Welcome to episode 167 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on September 11th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And this week, I got a little bit carried away with how many topics I'm going to cover, so let's just jump into your weekly source for Linux GNUs. This episode of Twill is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Recently, I made a video talking about 17 unknown KDE Plasma features on my channel, which of course I'll link to in the show notes. And in this video, I talked about KRunner, which is an awesome app launcher, as well as doing many other things. It can do like calculations and all sorts of stuff. But I received some comments from some people talking about wanting to have something like that on other DEs. So today on Twill, I wanna show you Ulauncher. Ulauncher is an application launcher for Linux written in Python and uses GTK. It has a lot of different features like uh, the app search for launching applications and it uses a fuzzy matching search, which means that it will try to figure out what you're trying to open, even if you spell the app name wrong, that kind of thing. Also, there's a calculator, a file browser mode. You can also extend its functionality with extensions. You can have customizable shortcuts, and there are even uh, custom color themes to be able to change how it looks on your setup. There are also other options inside of the Ulauncher that, that there's many, many things that you can check out. I just wanted to bring it to your attention because it is a pretty cool application. There are some other applications like that, because App Launchers has been around for a very long time. So there's, you know, U Launcher, there's K Runner, there's many more. And maybe it'd be a cool video for me to do that. And let me know in the comments below if you'd like to see a video showing off all the different App Launchers options on Linux. And if you'd like to learn more about U Launcher specifically, I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have a really interesting um, announcement from Manjaro and Vivaldi. And that is that Vivaldi is now becoming the default browser for a community edition of Manjaro, which is Manjaro Cinnamon. So Manjaro Cinnamon was using Firefox, but they're now switching to the Chromium-based Vivaldi for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of cool features in there. And they say that the Manjaro says that they uh, are hoping that this move gives Vivaldi the attention that it deserves. And Vivaldi is really cool, so I do think it does deserve some attention because they have a lot of interesting uh, customizations and functionality, such as they have many features like tab grouping or tab stacking, split screen support, a built-in mail client, which some people argue is even better than Thunderbird. I'm not saying that, but some people have argued that. Also, it has built has built-in gesture support, which these gestures are also customizable, which is really cool. And Vivaldi also has many privacy controls, such as anti-tracking and ad blocking by default, which is a very uh, very appealing thing for many people. Now, Linux users are also typically fans of customizing their systems, and also Vivaldi has taken note of this by making it possible to customize all sorts of different options. You can create unique workflows with customizable shortcuts, gestures, as I mentioned, customizable menus. Also, this thing called command change, command chains. I don't know why I can't say chains. Command chains especially suited for keyboard-based browsing. So there's a lot of cool customizations. And if you want to change the theme, like many people do like to do, you can in Vivaldi. And in fact, they have a theme switcher where you can choose from some default preset themes. You can also customize it if you want to. And they have a new Manjaro cinnamon theme for a polished out-of-the-box experience as well. Now, if you want to learn more about this particular announcement, you can check out the front page Linux article 
at frontpagelinux.com. I'll have it linked in the show notes for more information. And also be sure to join us tomorrow on Destination Linux because we're going to be live on September 12th, Sunday. Be sure to join us at 1 p.m. Eastern because we are going to have a fantastic guest. I'm so excited about having this guest on, and that is the CEO of Vivaldi itself. So this they're, they're going to be joining us tomorrow for an interview, so be sure to be there at 1 p.m. Eastern Time or 1700 UTC on September 12th on Sunday, which is tomorrow. I know I've said it multiple times, but I'm really excited, as you can t probably tell. So I can't wait to talk to him. So I hope you're there. Hope to see you there in the chat. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about the OpenShot video editor because this latest release of 2.6.1 just came out. And it's if you're not, if you're not familiar, OpenShot is designed to be an easy to use, quick to learn, low barrier to entry video editor. So if you are you've never been done video editing before, this might be a good fit for you. And this latest release have added a lot of new features and also improvements to existing features as well as of course bug fixes and that sort of stuff. But there is quite a few new things that I want to talk about, such as the new computer vision slash AI effects that they added for motion tracking, object detection, stabilization, and so much more. They've also added some new audio effects, which I really appreciate because I do a lot of post-processing for my audio all the time for every episode and every video I make. So these are in, these are very important to have. And this new audio effects set is compressor, distortion, delay, echoes, expander, also parametric EQing, which is really important, and many more. They've also added a new zoom slider widget, which is able to have easier navigation of the timeline. They've added some a new transform tool for resizing, rotating, moving, moving, zooming in and out, that sort of thing, as well as making it uh, having per, per, uh, parentable keyframes, which is important, as well as updating support for the latest FFmpeg, Blender, and more. And my favorite thing about OpenShot has got to be the Blender uh, integration, because by, by using Blender, they are able to have it do some like complex stuff like creating animated title scenes and that sort of stuff. It's a really cool feature that I think that other other video editors might consider, you know, uh, duplicating, you know, or copying, whatever, however you want to call it. It's a really, really cool feature. They've also done some other improvements to existing features like snapping and keyframing and saturation effects and many more. And if you'd like to learn more about the latest release of OpenShot, I'll have it linked in the show notes below. We've recently got some big news from NVIDIA regarding Wayland support. For years, NVIDIA has resisted supporting GBM, or the Generic Buffer Manager, which is used by the Mesa drivers and commonly utilized by the Wayland compositors for buffer handling. NVIDIA's preferred approach was around something called EGL streams. And now this didn't gain much adoption, likely due to it this being more of like an NVIDIA-only implementation. So many DE compositor and window manager developers were uh, vocal about not supporting EGL streams and insisting that NVIDIA work to support GBM instead. And it's been many years for that battle to uh, commence. And well, it seems that finally has sunk into NVIDIA as NVIDIA has now confirmed that Sway Wayland Compositor is working with their upcoming driver supporting GBM. Now, this is notable because Sway is a Wayland-only window manager that is essentially like a Wayland version of i3. And they dropped EGL stream support in 2019 before they did their, their 1.0 release. So having specif specifying that is supported is important because of that, that note 
of the EGL streams versus GBM. And they've also been working on DMA-BUF or DMA buff support and other Wayland-related improvements to their driver, some of which actually have already been released in the latest NVIDIA 470, and others, like the GBM support, is still ongoing. So it's a very, very good thing to see that they are doing the support for uh, having Wayland support and that kind of thing, focusing on the GBM so that there's not a lot of overlap and extra work being developed. So they're using the direct code that's in the Mesa drivers, which is just fantastic. And if you'd like to learn more, I'll have links for more information in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service, which is a fully managed database as a service or DBOS. With managed MongoDB, you can focus more on building scalable high-performance apps and less on dealing with maintaining the database because you can simply offload your MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle well, basically everything because they handle the provisioning, the managing, the scaling, the updates, the backups, and the security of your clusters. Also, DigitalOcean built this service in partnership with MongoDB Inc. because in that way, together, they have ensured that you will get access to all of the latest releases of MongoDB document database as they become available. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, better than free because DigitalOcean is going to give you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash dln mongo. Again, that's do.co slash dln mongo, dln mongo, to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new managed MongoDB service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, we got some gaming topics to cover. And first of all, we're going to talk about the new update for the Steam client, which is a big update. And there's a big focus on the downloads page and the storage management for the folders for your library and that sort of stuff. And there's also some other updates as well. We'll get to those in a second. But first, let's talk about the downloads page because the new downloads page is a big improvement. They have added the ability to do drag and drop so you can change the games around in the queue for when something is going to be updated. Also, there's more detailed progress bar. So it now shows the total progression based on the downloading sp speed and also the disk allocation of your system and many, many more improvements for the download page. And then also the storage manager, which manager, storage manager, that's the one I'm most interested in because there's a lot of cool features that they've added for this. So they, they have overhauled basically the whole thing with the folder management. So instead of like a plain list of folders, it now gives you easier access to each folder that you have set up. And it also allows for mounting of library folders on read-only drives, removing um, empty library folders, and also includes a new UI to make it easier to manage across multiple different drives. So in fact, this new... Uh, UI is a better design overall, but it also offers a lot of new features. Like you can repair, you can repair folders. You can make certain folders default. Then you can basically say like you can see different data about the different games on each drive, which is really cool. So you can see like when the when each game is last played. You can also see how much space a particular game is taking up on which drive and that sort of stuff, and so much more. Lots of cool stuff. They've also done some other stuff to improve their performance, like. Like the library printing proce uh, pinning process is significantly faster for like startup after like the runtime updates because sometimes you'll start up Steam and you'll see you got to wait for the runtime. They've improved the, the speed of that a lot, which is nice. They've also added support 
for the SDL 2.0.16 release uh, in the SDK and the runtime. We talked about that on episode 164 of Twill. So if you'd like to learn more about what SDL is, how it works, and why this is important, I'll have that linked in the show notes. And I'll also have a link in the show notes for more information if you would like to know about the latest update to the Steam client. Up next in the show is a project that I want to talk about because it is an up-and-coming PlayStation 4 emulator. That's right. So GamingOnLinux.com recently reported on a very interesting project. This is called Spine, and this is an uh, emulator for the PlayStation 4. And it's really interesting because the PS4 went, was a, the generation that went back to the x86 CPUs instead of the cell style found in the PS3. This makes the emulator more like a compatibility layer similar to Wine and less like a full emulator. Now, this is also really interesting because Spine is intended to be a Linux exclusive, at least for now, which is pretty cool. And some people are, you know, not necessarily in favor of that. There were some people talking about how we should not have exclusive for ethical reasons or, you know, that kind of thing. But in the reason why this person decided to make a Linux exclusive, they said it makes some things a bit easier. But the primary reason is that's the system I use. It could be made to work with some effort. Uh, I, and I had a limited Mac OS version for a while, for example, but frankly, I don't really care. That's a, that's a reasonable re- reason. You know, I think that's a funny reason because he says, especially with the direction Windows seems to be going, that he's not interested. So this is, uh, in my opinion, a good reason to an exclusive because if you don't want to put the work in, then don't. <laughs> so, uh, but there are some other issues. There's an issue with it currently. It's a kind of a caveat, but it's only a temporary caveat. And that is that it is currently closed sourced software. Now it's, it's only closed while it's under heavy development, but they have stated that it will be open sourced when it is closer to being released. So I assume that once it is open source, someone will port it to Windows or whatever. So, you know, the people who are worried about the Linux exclusive in that sense don't have to worry for, you know, much longer after its release, probably. But I think it's interesting that they focused on making a Linux version. And they also say that this particular uh, project has has included a very large compatibility list. They say that 996 titles are listed on that compatibility list, with 345 mentioning that it can go into the game and 207 that don't work at all yet. So it has a large compatibility list, which is really cool to see. And I think it's really interesting that they're able to do it with a more wine-like approach rather than a full emulator as well. And if you'd like to learn more about this particular announcement and this particular project, I'll have links to the Gaming on Linux article as well as the tweet about it where you can get the demo download. But keep in mind, it is a demo and there's not that much information about it right now. So if you want to wait until it's actually released, you, you know, just let you know that you may want to do that. But I'll have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we got some news that Red Hat will be officially having support for EPL, or Apple. Now, this they're said to be establishing a small team to work on activities around the Apple repositories. What does that mean? Well, Apple stands for ex- Extra Packages for Enterprise Linux, and it is a Fedora Special Interest Group, or SIG, that a large, like, create a large number and of packages, and maintain, they maintain and manage over like 3,000 packages that are not included in RHEL. 
So this is a very, uh, very interesting move because there are a lot of really interesting packages that are useful for enterprise that typically was only managed or maintained and supported by the community. And now with Red Hat being involved, there is a lot more potential for this. Also, the extra packages for enterprise or Apple has been a great success for complementing the package selection for RHEL and CentOS and also others that are based on those. Rich Bowen posted on the CentOS.org blog saying that we are pleased to announce that Red Hat is establishing a small team directly responsible for participating in Apple activities. Their job isn't to displace the Apple community, but rather support it in full time. We expect many beneficial effects among those better Apple readiness for a rail major release, which is really great to see because there's some time, there was a little bit of a delay when that happened. So now with this new approach, there is going to be, uh, in theory, a lot better uh, access for these packages available for rails when they make new releases or new major releases. And the Apple team will be a part of the wider Community Platform Engineering Group, or CPE for short. And the, for those who don't know, the CPE is Red Hat's team combining IT and release engineering from Fedora and CentOS. And this work is going to begin beginning in October of this year, so very soon. And I think there's going to be a lot of beneficial to v value for people who are in the enterprise world de uh, deploying a lot of stuff based on Red Hat and that sort of thing. So this is really good news for them. And if you'd like to learn more about this, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, let's talk about Hunix with the latest release of Hunix 16. So this has been in development for about two years now, and Hunix, not Unix, Hunix 16 is based on Debian 11 or Debian Bullseye, and this release will serve as a development foundation for many exciting upcoming security enhancements for the distribution, such as the hardened, uh, hardened Malik Kick, secu Kick Secure, the uh, Linux Kernel Runtime Guard, and also many other things. And you can learn more about their security roadmap. I'll have that linked in the show notes if you'd like to see that. But what is Hunix, you might be asking? Well, Hunix is a desktop operating system designed for advanced security and privacy. It has support for a lot of things like the Tor network. It is a heavily reconfigured Debian base running inside multiple virtual machines as well. And they say that it's the only operating system designed to be run inside a VM and paired with Tor. Now, this is kind of similar. You may have heard of something else like called Tails, and this is they, they kind of work in a similar uh, purpose where they they're made for a uh, high level of security and privacy and that sort of stuff. And Hunix is a is like kind of like a competitor to Tails, you could say. And, but it is a really cool distribution, and if you are in the market for one of those things, you can check it out. I'll have links in the show notes below to learn more about Hunix 16. And speaking of Tails, Tails 4.22 has been released this week. For those unfamiliar, Tails stands for the Amnesiac Incognito Live System. That's why they call it Tails, because that's a lot to say. The latest release of 4.22 has updated the Tor browser to 10.5.6. They've worked on a lot of improvements to the Tor Connection Assistant. That's where they've focused most of their work on that. And in fact, let's talk about that a little bit more. The Tails 4.22 uh, makes the new Tor Connection Assistant introduced in 4.20 much improved by changing the custom bridge interface to only allow entering one bridge. People had trouble knowing how to enter their, their, the custom bridges when the widget was using a text area, so they made it a lot simpler to do. Also, they made it to use only one or use the first bridge because people only use that anyway. 
And also, uh, they added support for saving a custom bridge in the persistent storage if you want to do that, as well as made Tor connections using bridges more robust by allowing users to manually fix the clock. Now, that seems weird, like how does this have an effect by just changing the clock? Well, this helps people from different parts of the world connect to Tor using the OBFS4 bridges and makes connecting to Tor more robust in general by being able to make that change. And in addition to this, this release also reduces the timeout that determines if Tor connections can be established uh, from 30 seconds to 10 seconds. This increases the timeout to start Tor entirely from 120 seconds to 600 seconds, thus making the Tor connection assistant more robust on slow internet connections, and it now lets users try to connect to Tor again more easily from the error screen. As well, And if you'd like to learn more about Tails, like I said, it's very similar to Hunix. It's a privacy security focused distribution based on Debian. They're very similar. And you can check out more about Tails with the links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is a password manager, which is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, Bitwarden provides a lot of different tools. For example, they have tools to be able to store your passwords in a secured vault. They also be able to automatically generate those passwords for you on your various different websites, because if you don't know, you should have a different password for every website that you go to, actually every account on every website, because if, uh, if you reuse passwords, hackers love you, because that way they can take passwords from insecure sites and then reuse them on stuff that actually matters, like your bank or whatever. So always have a different password for every account on every website, and Bitwarden makes that much easier. Now, there also could be some issues of having to you know, remember those passwords, right? But you don't have to, and you don't even have to type them in because Bitwarden automatically fills in those passwords on login forms, so you don't have to do that. You can also access your passwords on many different types of devices, whether it's your web browser extensions, using the mobile applications or desktop applications. They even work on the command line if you want to do that. Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end -end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Now, that's a very big point. They make this the, the encryption in the security is done locally so that when it sends to the servers for the syncing, it's a bunch of gibberish, and the only way to get that stuff is to have the keys to be able to decrypt it, which is only available on your devices, and that is awesome. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. Did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium accounts because they have a one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, Priority Customer Service, Bitwarden Send, which is a really cool file transfer system, and so much more. And you get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right. Less than a dollar per month gets you access to all of this. And you can get started right now by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. They also have some other features that I love, like the, the business accounts where you can have an organizational vault where everybody can share stuff that relates to multiple people having different access. So like employees and, and, and uh, executives and all that stuff can have access to this, a single shared vault or multiple shared vaults. You can also do that with the same thing with your like family account. So you can have you know you, people in your family who are not familiar with the password manager. You can make it easier to set them up with the family account. There's so much great stuff about Bitwarden. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, let's talk about OpenWRT 21.2 has just been released with higher security with WPA3, HTTPS, and TLS 
enabled by default, as well as initial support for the distributed switch architecture or DSA. This is the Linux standard for configurable Ethernet switches and that sort of stuff. There's also, for those unfamiliar, OpenWRT is the one of the most popular open source Linux distributions for routers and entry level uh, Linux capable in, embedded machines. And the latest release includes over 5,800 commits since the last one of OpenWRT 19.07, which was released in January 2020. And you may be wondering, what does the WRT stand for? As I was researching this topic for this week, I thought about it and I couldn't remember what the letters stood for. So I had to look it up myself. And as it turns out, it seems like they don't stand for anything. So there you go. It looks like it was named after a router from Linksys, and they didn't bother to rename it once they started supporting other routers. So, you know, a little bit of trivia for you. Now, the latest release of uh, OpenWRT 21.02 has, I mentioned, has a better, higher security with WPA3. Now, WPA3 was already supported in version 19.07, but it was not enable, enabled by default, and now it is enabled by default. And together with this and TLS, thanks to the trusted CA certificates that are provided by Mozilla, that means it has support for the Lucy interface, WGit, and OPKG package manager that all can support HTTPS out of the box now. And also getting new features and more security is nice, but it looks like it came with the cost of higher system requirements. So depending on your router, you may or may not be able to upgrade if you already have OpenWRT installed. So OpenWRT 21.02 minimum system requirements are now 8 megabytes of flash and 64 megabytes of RAM. That doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, we're talking about uh, routers and stuff like that. They don't typically have gigs and gigs as you would normally hear from other machines. But they also recommend having 16 megabytes of flash and 128 megabytes of RAM if you intend to install any extra packages for extending the functionality. Now, it's still possible to build OpenWRT 21.02 for a system with only 4 megabytes of flash and 32 megabytes of RAM, but it's not recommended. So if you want to try it, you may be able to and that sort of stuff. But there's actually an interesting uh, router situation I've been dealing with, and I've been looking at OpenWRT. So the fact that it came out with a new release is quite interesting and in the timing for it because, well, I've had an issue with my router fairly often in the past few months, and that is... During live streams, my router would just suddenly decide to kill the stream for no reason at all. It turns out it's a bug in that particular router's firmware, so I started looking at what could I replace it with. So this bug was basically really, it's really weird because it was so specific. So at two hours, four minutes, and four seconds, every single time, it would cut the connection. No reason whatsoever. The the uh, the people who made it, which is uh, Netgear, they had no fix for it, and it's been a problem for many years. I didn't know this, and turns out I I found out uh, the hard way that sometimes these online retailers will change what the product actually is when you go to buy it because I I purchased it one time and then went back like seven eight months purchased for a different reason another one, but it was a different version of the same model. So it was like a slightly modified version, and that modified version is the one that has the problem. So fantastic. Lots of lear uh, learning the hard way there. So anyway, I found that there are some builds for something similar to my router because there's all these routers have different uh, model numbers and whatnot, right? So I have the Netgear Nighthawk 5 R7000P. 
So that part matters because there is an R7000 build of OpenWRT, but not an R7000P. So I'm curious, with anybody out there who is familiar with OpenWRT, would it be possible for the R7000 build to be compatible with the R7000P, or should I find a different uh, firmware? Just let me know in the comments below. I would love to know your opinion on that. And also, if you'd like to learn more about OpenWRT 21.02, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about OpenSSL 3.0. Now, this is a very important uh, project. It's been used in uh, thousands and thousands of implementations and in very big corporations and all sorts of stuff. It was quite important. And after three years of development and 17 alpha releases with two beta releases and over 7,500 commits with contributions from over 350 different authors, OpenSSL 3.0 has finally arrived. And OpenSSL 3.0 features greater extensibility, various code cleanups and deprecations, architectural improvements, and so much more. So OpenSSL 3.0 has migrated to a provider-based architecture to allow a greater flexibility. They've also added better support for the HTTPS and HTTP client in LibCrypto. They've made it fully pluggable, uh, support with fully pluggable TLS version 1.3 groups. They've also added new encoder and decoder support. A, a complete certificate management protocol for CMP implementation, as well as some new APIs and also integrated support for kernel LTLS, as well as much, much more stuff, including a new FIPS module. So the, for those who don't know, FIPS 140-2 is a standard that defines security uh, requirements for cryptographic modules. So this is a new module for support for that. And also the announcement says that the documentation has been greatly improved, which is great to see, with a 94% increase in the amount of documentation since the last release, which is really cool. Also, OpenSSL's reputation took kind of a bit of a hit for 2014. And that was with the uh, Heartbleed bug that allowed attackers to steal the information protected by SSL and TLS encryption. For those who don't know, SSL and TLS encryption is used for most of the secure internet communications that exist today. And there were, But there were also some people who were pointing the finger at bigger, big corporations that used OpenSSL without providing any funding or development assistance at all. So there was like this kind of an interesting because it took, they had a a reputation hit for the project itself, but also pointing out that it's a it was a small project that was being used by gigantic corporations that were not you know helping out making it more more robust because it is a very important project. Now since then, the OpenSSL project has had a number of changes, including full-time engineers who work towards this release of OpenSSL 3.0. They've also had been uh, financed in a number of ways now, like support contracts or sponsoring of specific features, such as the FIP supports module was a sponsored uh, a feature that was being made, and also many, many more ways. So Heartbleed wasn't a good thing to have happened. Of course it wasn't. But it does seem that the project has bounced back rather well, thanks to the uh, gathering, you know, like kind of like everybody in the community working together to make it as better, much better, and making it as good as possible for this latest release of OpenSSL 3.0. And that is fantastic news. So if you'd like to learn more about OpenSSL 3.0, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have OpenSSH to talk about with the latest release of 8.7. OpenSSH is a very popular, if not the most popular, connectivity tool for remote login with the SSH protocol. 
Now it encrypts all traffic to eliminate eavesdropping and connection hijacking and other kinds of attacks and that sort of stuff. And they also provide tools for like secure or tunneling capabilities and authentication methods and that sort of stuff. And the latest release of 8.7 has some interesting updates and one that is going to have some people a little bit scrambling potentially. We'll get to that in a bit. So the latest release of 8.7 has uh, some changes to the SCP stuff. So the SCP for remote-to-remote copies will now transfer through the local host by default to avoid exposing uh, credentials over on the origin hop and other improvements. Also, the SCP adds experimental support for transfers using the SFTP protocol as an eventual replacement to the SCP slash RCP protocol. Now, the SF, SFTP usage leads to more predictable file name handling and also other improvements. And they're also going to be doing stuff like the, the SCP-S flag will enable SFTP usage and is planned to become the default sometime soon. They haven't said exactly when, but in the near future, they say. Also, the SSH and SSHD are now employing a stricter configuration file parser. And this part, the next part, is the one that might be a little bit of a controversial change and that it is the implement steps to disable the SSH RSA signature scheme by default. Now this is not planned for this particular release this is planned for the next release of OpenSSH, and users are encouraged to move now to a better, as they say, a better, more secure alternatives. Now the reason for this is that the, the, the SSH-RSA signature scheme uses SSH-1, uh, so SHA-1 or SSH, SHA-1. Now, this is a hash algorithm in conjunction with the RSA public key al algorithm, and unfortunately, there have been ways found to break SHA-1 or SHA-1. It is now possible to perform chosen prefix attacks against the SHA-1 SHA algorithm, so they're going to be deactivating support for this. Now, they're going to be deactivating it, but they say that the deactivation of the SSH-RSA signatures does not mean people have to stop using RSA keys. In the SSH protocol, keys may be compatible or capable of signing uh, using multiple algorithms. For example, there's also there's RSA-SHA2-256 or rsa dash SHA2 dash 512 and both of those options are still going to be compatible the one that's the RSA SHA1 that's the one that will be turned off by default now this is going to be a big impact on a lot of systems but mostly focused on like the enterprise world depending on how old a company's deployments are and that sort of thing so if they're using more up-to-date versions of pretty much any distro they're probably going to be fine so if they're using ubuntu 1804 or debian 9 or above or you know uh, rail 7 or above and that kind of thing they'll be fine to use uh, the newer versions and not have to worry about the shell one support but there are people who might be deploying on older machines and older systems, and they will probably have to deal with that much more so. Uh, but for the regular user that's utilizing OpenSSH, there won't be much impact at all from this change. But it might make a lot of tutorials rather outdated, so to speak, because a lot of them tell you to use RSA, uh, SSH-RSA uh, typically. So you know that if you find a, a tutorial that talks about that, as a suggestion, then you may want to look into something else or look at the other options. Now, on the bright side of this, I'll be publishing a new article about getting started with SSH pretty soon on the frontpagelinux.com website in a couple of days. So 
That's kind of convenient in this case because we were already working on making this article and it's going to be published in pretty close to when this is relevant news. So there you go. See how that worked out? If you'd like to learn more about OpenSSH 8.7, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we got some legal news to talk about, and that is the SPDX becomes the Software Bill of Materials standard. So the Linux Foundation, the Joint Development Foundation, and the SPDX community today announced the Software Package Data Exchange, or SPDX, specification has been published as ISO or ISO slash IEC 5962 colon 2021, just rolls right off the tongue, and recognized as the international open standard for security, license compliance, and other software supply chain factors. So it's backed by many of the world's largest companies for more than a decade, such as Intel, Microsoft, Simons, Sony, Synopsys, VMware, Wind River, and many, many more. And this is, so what does all this mean, right? SPDX is an open standard for communicating software bill of material information, including provenance of the code, uh, license, security, and other related information. So SPDX reduces redundant work by providing common formats for organizations and communities to share important data, which makes it easier to streamline the development and also improve compliance, security, and dependability of software going forward in a bigger scale. And if you want more information, we'll have links about spdx.org in the show notes. But of course, I just said it. You know what I mean. S- SPDX formally becomes an international recognized ISO slash IEC JTC1 standard during a transformational time for software and supply chain security because there have been a lot of things that people were worried about. Like what? Like we, they even had discussions about an SBOM or a software bill of material standard needs to be made. So it's really great to see that SPDX has been, you know, applied for that because it has been in development and usage for many, many years by a lot of big corporations. Now there is one weird thing that I noticed. And if you, if you were wanting to see the specs, if you wanted to read the specs for SPDX and went to the ISO.org website, they will charge you 190 Swiss francs or 215 US dollars to get that documentation. That's kind of weird. This seems to be an, uh, an item of contention among some people because they say that often documentation is held behind a paywall, which is very weird for a standard like this. Now, that is kind of weird. However, the SPDX didn't just leave it at that. They, they, on the other hand, what they did is release the spec for their, for the, the documentation for their spec on their GitHub. So you can go to their GitHub repo and get all the information if you want to without having to pay anything, which is really nice. So if you'd like to learn more about this particular standard or any of this, these things related to this particular topic, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have a lot of great Humble Bundles to talk about. There's, also, there's a lot of books, games, and software in these bundles. So first of all, we're going to talk about the Kubernetes with Pluralsight bundle. Now, Kubernetes is an open source container platform that helps automate various processes in relation to deploying, managing, and scaling uh, containerized apps. And Humble Bundle has a bundle of Kubernetes training courses where you can learn all sorts of stuff about Kubernetes. We'll have that linked in the show notes. And also, real quick... The links will be affiliate links, so if you do decide you would like to purchase uh, any of these particular bundles, please use those links below because they will help uh, contribute to this show and this channel, so it would be very much appreciated. Also, next, we're going to talk about the Python Superpowers Bundle, and that is a bundle that teaches you about 
uh, how to learn to use Python as well as getting access to different software to use Python. So they have the Mastering PyCharm 2021 edition book as well as object-oriented programming in Python. And there's also uh, access for six months free of the PyCharm Professional Edition software and 12 months free of Sorcery access. So Sorcery is a really interesting application because it runs in the background and it suggests real-time improvements to your Python code. From simplifying conditionals to extracting out methods and what basically sorcery helps you write more clean, well-structured Python code, which is pretty cool. And you get 12 months free access for that. And also the next bundle is Advanced Making Electronics with Charles Platt by the Make Make Magazine, basically. And there's a bunch of stuff in here. There's the Encyclopedia of Electronic Components, Volume 1, 2, and 3, where you'll learn stuff about resistors, capacitors, inductors, LEDs, LCDs, tri-resistors, tri-resistors, thyristors, thyristors, words, digital logic, amplification, uh, sensors, all sorts of stuff is available in these books. Also, Machine Learning Bookshelf by No Starch Press Bundle gives you access to learn about uh, diving into algorithms such as uh, Pythonic, uh, Adventure for the Intrepid Beginner is one of the books. Also, Algorithmic Thinking, a problem-based introduction, as well as a visual approach uh, to deep learning ebook. And then we're going to check out the game bundles because there's a couple games, well, three bundles I want to talk about games related. Uh, first of all is the Humongous Back to School Bundle. And this is kind of an interesting thing because it's like, depending on your age, you might have some nostalgia for these games as when you were a kid, but also you can use it to uh, teach kids various different things. So if you you may or may not remember if you were exposed to these things as a child, there was a Spy Fox in Dry Cereal Game. There's Putt Putt Saves the Zoo. Uh, Pajama Sam, No Need to Hide When It's Dark Outside. These kinds of games, many, many more in that bundle. There's also another complete opposite kind of bundle, and that is the Best of Stealth bundle, where it's games like uh, Hitman, Hitman 2, uh, Origami, uh, not Origami, Origami, uh, Sticks, Shades of Darkness, or Shards of Darkness, and more in that bundle. And then we're also going to talk about the Telltale Games bundle, which includes games like The Wolf Among Us, uh, Walking Dead, Batman Telltale series, and more. And also, the Wolf, speaking of The Wolf Among Us, check out the latest episode of Gamesphere, where I join Matt to talk about the game The Wolf Among Us. So that just kind of worked out perfectly for as the timing goes and that kind of thing. So I'll have that linked in the show notes as well, as well as links to all of the bundles, with which, again, will be affiliate links. There's also going to be some links that are bundles that I'm, I have not talked about in this episode, but there will be, you know, they have a lot of them available right now. But those are the ones I wanted to highlight. But I will have links to all of them, just in case you want to check them out. But anyway, links in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, uh, Patreon, sponsors, and many more. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And also, if you become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. And that we have, we actually have a post-show that's live streamed and also a little one, or well, not a little one, it's actually... It was, it, there's no time time frame on that one. Anyway, we have a patron post show that is live streamed and also one that is offline, which you know anybody can join who is a patron to experience the wonders of the post show. I don't know where I'm going with that. 
You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt, which is a shirt I am wearing right now. And you can go you go to the dlnstore.com to check that out. And you'll find a bunch of great stuff there as well. You'll find stuff like mugs, hoodies, hats, stickers, uh, backpacks, aprons, all sorts of stuff. And with an apron, you can, and you, if you like grilling, you can twill while you grill. So many great things at thedealinstore.com, so check that out. And also, while you're at the Destination Linux Network website, be sure to check out all the other stuff, like the all the great podcasting goodness that's there, such as the other shows that I'm a part of, like Destination Linux Podcast, as well as Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on DLN. There's also a lot of, a lot of other great stuff, like DLN Extend, Pseudo Show, and many more, so check those out. And also, just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC, or until daylight saving time changes, then it will be 1800 UTC. But right now, it's 1700 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news. <laughs>